No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Working with the students, faculty, and alums of Fairleigh Dickinson's Creative Writing MFA program, we produced an alternate No, You Guess It version of our show at their summer writing residency. What does that mean? Give a listen the show a little differently. And it's funny because everybody asks me all the time, like, what, what made you think of this? The perfect answer came to me last night when we were at the dance party and my karaoke song came on, which is Four Non Blondes, Hey, Yay, Yay, Yay. That's the actual title. And I ran up to Elliot, as I have a million times before, to other people and was like, that's my karaoke song. And most people say, like, oh, you go, girl, go dance. Or they start singing. Elliot immediately goes, interpretive dance on the lawn? (laughs) And I thought to myself in that moment, that's exactly why I do know you tell it, because I want to be the person, at least for a few minutes, whose immediate answer is interpretive dance on the lawn. And um, and actually, right after that, though, because I, of course, said yes, because how do you not when an adorable person asks you to go do an interpretive dance on the lawn? But he looked at me and he said, but will you commit? <laughs> My favorite part of Know You Tell It is that, you know, we work on these stories, we develop them on the page, we do all these story workshops, but so why would you be able to stand up and read a story or embody somebody's story in a vacuum? So we do these little, like, these little rehearsals, and I've been rehearsing with everyone you're going to see this morning throughout the week to help them commit to the story as if it's their experience. The six uh, true life tales you're going to hear this morning were all written specifically for today's show and inspired by the theme, My First. And actually for the first time in Know You Tell It history, nobody except for me right now knows who all of the writers are. You can take a look around. All I can tell you is that somebody here wrote each of the six stories, but we didn't even tell the people that are participating who the other people are. I met with them throughout the week. They didn't know for sure. They might have had guesses. I tried to keep poker-faced, but I didn't know for sure whose story it is that they're going to perform for you tonight, this morning. Still, I'm still up from last night. So, uh, so I've nicknamed this morning's show, No, You Guess It, right? since it's a little bit of a twist on our usual No, You Tell It style. And as you go along, you can go ahead and guess who wrote it. And the way that it's going to work is, is the first person will come up, embody the story at the end, we'll try to guess, and then that'll out the next writer. And then they'll kind of fall like dominoes until we get through to the end. (laughs) Anthony Gramulia is going to come up. He very bravely volunteered to be our first reader. My first plaster and jay sandwich. Growing up, my mother was Mother Goose in the flesh. Everything was riddly and rhymy, and she even wore on occasion a blue scarf that looked like a bonnet. Why? Oh, well, to, to this day, I, I don't have the slightest clues. Uh, and just in case you were wondering, we lived in the city, and our butter was as margarine as margarine can get, without any churning included. I still can't believe it wasn't butter. All those, <laughs> all those wonder bread years later. As I got older, 
She reminded me more of the Riddler. And I, Batgirl, trying to decipher her cryptic motherly mother goose riddles and rhymes like Unzi font font font, les petites marionnettes, Unzi font font font, tres petites stars, let's put and vont. As the Wonderbread years turned into sophisticated normalties, to no avail, she and I didn't always see eye to eye. But in the spring of 2000, the day after my sixth birthday, something happened that has been more memorable than blowing out some candles. It became the day my mother fed me plaster. <laughs> yes, yes, you heard that right, plaster. That, that building material used to fix holes in walls. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work on hearts. <laughs> I found that out the hard way. My mother presented to me two white, bare-crusted walls filled with tiny holes like the pores that my grandmother wore on her nose. I, I, I legit thought those were, that they were extra nostrils. <laughs> and, and that ridiculous thought was not my fault. Like my mother, her mother was on the goosey side too. And once, when I had curiously asked about them, my grandmother replied, all the better to breathe with. Oh. <laughs> Thus I put the two together like any normal four-year-old would. Nose holes, breathe, and voila, you get nostrils. I was given the chance to witness a spread choreographed by my goosey mother. Mom used a butter knife to scoop this brown-like plaster out and began humming to the rhythm of her expansion while swaying to the swing of the butter knife. Without any acknowledgement of the thickness of the plaster, she went on spreading that I was able to see the fixative paste from an angle. Besides the height, my mother moved to the next wonder wall where tiny goosebumps were formed. That side was purple flubber that swayed along with my mother's rhythm. I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the thrill of the ritual my mom put on. She tried to tame the beast that was wobbling off the wall by whipping it with the knife. But it took quite a walloping just to settle it. Wondering what would be done to the two walls worlds apart, my mom collides them. Handing it to me, I take a bite, starting from the ear edge. And that's when I lose the ability to open my mouth, whether to talk or take another viscous bite. I didn't understand what was taking place in my mouth, so I swirl the spackly, gelatinous junk around my roof. I used my tongue as a shovel to remove the plaster from the top part of my mouth. I fed the rest to the garbage. And I thought that was the end of that. My siblings loved their plaster and jay sandwiches and never understood my pushback against the toothsomed goop. My mother, being more quacky to make it, latches me onto this lunch. Ugh. Others at my table sat and talked about their filled with fun lunch boxes. And that's when I pull out my one side of moist, soggy jelly slice and the other side solid sandwich with my bottle of water. 
The water was for the purpose of making sure I didn't suffocate from choking on the chunks. It was for my own safety. As I nabbed a chunk to chew, I read the Heimlich Maneuver posters pasted on the cafeteria walls just to make sure I knew how to get myself out of any sticky situation. by our windows. The job was simple. Stand next to the grain pit and wait for an 18-wheeler with a trailer full of wheat to come. Once the truck jerked to a halt, all I had to do was attach a handle to the trailer and crank. This opened the sliding door and the grain would slip down the pit where it was augured into the elevator and dumped into rail cars headed for the coast. While waiting on the grain, I would chat with the drivers about baseball and rain. It was lunch break in mid-July. Bobby and I decided to climb the 90-foot tower on top of the elevator. Arms and legs working, we spidered up the steel rungs to the observation deck. <clears throat> Neither of us spoke as we took in the view. Sky stretching away, rough earth sprinting out to meet it at the horizon. At that moment, we were the tallest thing in the county, except for the cross. At 99 feet, the cross on the hill north of town was a local monument. 
99 exactly. If it had been 100, they would have had to mount a blinking light on top per FAA regulation. <laughs> Pleased with myself and the view, I looked down, and that was when I saw it. A small bird nest with three eggs nestled inside, each barely bigger than a quarter. They looked like precious porcelain white with blue specks sprinkled on both ends. We should drop them, I said. Seriously? My friend shot back. I shook my head and said, of course not, as I reached down and one by one plucked the eggs out of their nest. I held them out over the edge, and like something out of a serial killer documentary, I let them roll gently off my hand. I remember watching the eggs plummet almost out of sight until there were pinpoints against the grave pavement. Then I heard it, the sound of three deaths. The eggs popped against the ground, three soft taps on a jazz snare drum. We stared at the wet spot. Then another truck wheezed around the corner, and that was it. That night, exhausted from the 14-hour workday, I collapsed into bed without a shower, still thinking about the little bird family. I thought of the mother bird. Did she see what I had done? Did she come back, scared and confused, to an empty nest? But that didn't matter now. I had taken life, and that was wrong. The next morning, I woke up, tried to look around my room, and quickly realized I couldn't see. Panicked, I thought that, like Saul on the road to Damascus, divine wrath had been let loose upon me. I ran, banging into doorways and walls, screaming to my mother, it's all darkness, I see darkness. She took my head in her hands, cooing softly, then sat me down on the cold tile floor, and I heard a mother bird wailing as eggs popped on pavement. My mother took my hand and led me to the bathroom where the faucet was running. She placed her hand on the back of my neck and pushed my face down to the water. Because I hadn't showered, my eyes were caked shut with solidified wheat dust. Filth now washed away. I raised my face to the mirror and received sight forthwith. No. Is it Corey? No. Is it Peyton? Is it you? 
Yes. Somebody just said it. Travelers in Malibu. My first drink was a poorly mixed vodka soda. Alex pushed it into my hands and I gulped down, Patrick pinching my nose. Finals were looming overhead, a harbinger of death for all that is good and fun in the world. The drink was mostly vodka, not because I was trying to get fucked up, but because the soda Alex bought was so bad I had to drown out the taste with travelers of all things. If you ever come across Stars and Stripes Cola, drink toilet cleaner instead. <laughs> the taste about the same. Alex, Patrick, and I left the dorm. Synchronized chants of Cinco de Drinko, Cinco de Drinko, reverberating across campus. We stood in the rain, waiting for a ride to a ZBT party. Frat brothers were picking people up and carpooling them to the house. But by the time they got to us, the cops had already been called. Pretty sure I slept with that guy anyhow. Patrick said on the way down the hill to my dorm, so it probably would have been super awkward. <laughs> Alex carried me on his back, and I got to touch his arms without making an ass of myself. Every light my dorm was on, and we were awash in fluorescence. Pale and drowned out with dark, lack of sleep circles under eyes, set into white. I don't remember the last time I saw sunlight faces. My sweet mates were strewn about the mushroom cloud of a collegiate atom bomb. Emily was making out with her girlfriend against her bedroom door. Sophia, the RA, was shrieking along the dashboard confessional, alcohol sloshing down her shirt. My roommate, Aline, was sprawled out on the floor, staring blearily up at Sophia. And Jillian was sitting on her bed, hands over her ears and a book in her lap, trying to ignore them. You started without us, Alex said. I climbed down from his shoulders as Patrick made a beeline for the alcohol. Emily lobbed a slurred. You're the ones who left us for some frat party, over her girlfriend said. We had some catching up to do. My second, third, and fourth drinks were also poorly mixed vodka sodas, thrown back one after the other while Sophia and Aline egged me on. Alex spread himself across the carpet, drinking from a bottle of Malibu Sophia had magicked out of nowhere. Underage RAs had mysterious powers and should be feared. <laughs> Patrick simply overturned half a bottle of Travelers into a blue Solo cup. I was, I was wasted by the time Alex found me underneath Sophia's bed. <laughs> what you doing down here, Missy? He inched toward me on his elbows, balancing shot glasses filled to the brim in either hand and trying not to spill them. One of them ended up in my hair anyway, and I promptly burst into tears. Not because of the overwhelming smell of coconut soaking into my scalp, but because I was having too many indecipherable emotions about his stupid face. Shit, shit, Emily, help. With the grace of a newborn draft, Alex scrambled out from under the bed, spilling the other shot down his arm. Emily replaced him, laying her head across my chest. He wants to kiss your face, she said, smoothing a hand clumsily across my forehead. No, he doesn't, I sniffed. He likes you, she insisted. Bastard's too pretty for me. Emily made a noise like a squawking seagull, shouted Alexander over her shoulder, and wiggled out from under the bed. The overly long bedsheet swung down. There was hushed, frantic whispering before Alex flipped the sheet back up 
and shuffled so close our noses touched. I think you're smoking, he whispered. He tried to run fingers through my hair, but got stuck in a thicket of curls in Malibu. <laughs> he ignored it and said in a low voice, want me to show you? We crawled out from under the bed, hands tangled together, and stumbled into my bedroom. I shut the door behind us to the sound of Patrick vomiting. <laughs> Alex and I sexiled Aline from my room for 12 hours. Patrick threw up so threw up so much he clogged our toilet. <laughs> Neither of us have been able to live it down. <laughs> so take a moment to write down any guesses you have for travelers in Malibu. Yes? Herself set up. Does anybody have any questions for her about the story or about hearing the story? From was it yes? good alcohol? It was traveler's vodka. It, oh. it comes in a plastic pitcher. So I had inside knowledge on who the author was because I read a version of that story. Oh. Amanda was my undergraduate student. She read the sad version. The first one. And that was my question. It's 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 a few years have passed. You've been through the MFA program. What was your feeling about when you like knew you were going to use this story? And has the material changed or your approach to that? I feel like when I wrote the personal essay uh, two three years ago, when uh, you were just a baby, when I was still just a tiny baby, it was still fresh. I was still at school. Uh, so obviously I was like, this is still the end of the fucking world. <laughs> and now I'm kind of just like, I tell everyone that story and I'm just like, yeah, remember that time I got bullied out of my dorm? This was fun. <laughs> um, now I'm just like, fuck it. And I just relive all of the funner memories about that time. So. Has your mother read it? <laughs> <laughs> my mom knows. <laughs> right now, Amanda is going to read Into the Rapids, story number four. Into the Rapids. Two years before the towers fell, my ex and I bought a four-story brownstone on 21st Street in Chelsea. It would be the new location for the transcription and recording business he had managed for 20 years. I had worked on and off there from when I was 17, handling the front office, making corrections on IBM Correcting Selectrics, and scheduling the work. The original location of the business was uptown on 42nd Street in the Lincoln Building. It had been there ever since his father had bought the business in 76. After his dad died in 95, my ex bought the business from his mother, but by 1998, it was clear that rents were on the rise. The idea of moving to Jersey was an anthema. And, as we've all been taught, property under the right conditions, in the right location, is a good investment. That's the rationale, anyway. The truth? Owning property in Manhattan is sexy. <laughs> Think of the possibilities. Think of the admiration. Think of the fact that your father hadn't managed to do it, but you will. It was audacious. I say my ex and I bought, 
but that's not exactly the truth. I wish we had made a decision together. The truth is, my ex bought the building against my wishes. Don't get me wrong. I saw the economic sense and the possibilities. It was the details of how to carry it out, the reality of what it would take after the lease was signed, and how it would affect the entire family, us and our two kids, that had me resisting and questioning. He came home one day with a signed deed. A coup de grace, an offer I literally couldn't refuse. Irrevocable. He had thrown us all into a raft and paddled it straight into class six level whitewater rapids under the delusion that he could paddle and steer the whole thing by himself. He was manic. I was raging mad. Seething, I considered my options. A, divorce. <laughs> Everything would collapse. It was practically collapsing already, and he was showing serious signs of overload. If I left him, I'd end up with nothing, and there would be nothing for the kids either. B, kill him. <laughs> I might get off on an insanity plea But who the fuck will love these kids the way I do? See? Stay married, but wash my hands of the whole affair I could get a job, let him flounder Let him lose it all This seemed the most principled choice But I could see myself in the future regretting this pride the idea of losing so much made me sick and angry, and I could only go back to B, kill him. <laughs> then there was D, bestow my help upon my dear husband and make him regret it every single day of his life. <laughs> but these didn't feel like choices, they felt like reactions. If I was going to do this, I had to do it in good faith. Everything we owned and things we didn't were sunk into that building. To stay afloat, we had to paddle harder and longer than we could have possibly imagined. We were rarely home. The two kids were on their own back in Jersey. My daughter was only 10. My son, at 15, remember being 15, was acting out and heading for who knew what kind of trouble. I was too busy to worry, and yet I did anyway. I hoped that everything we had taught them would get them through, or at least keep them in one piece. For a few months, before we moved into the new building, we were renovating both the Chelsea building and the suite on 42nd Street. We did the work ourselves with three to six other people hired to help. Our lease at 42nd Street was still in effect for another year, so we needed to sublease it in order to avoid a stiff penalty. But we had to renovate it for the new tenants. Our contract in the Lincoln building, building stipulated that we had to use their contractors for any renovation. And their contractors cost a fortune. We would need to be sneaky. Every fucking thing, every tool, every material we needed for that renovation 
Big things, like wood and sheetrock, had to be disguised, sometimes in sheets of wrapping paper like a birthday present, <laughs> and brought up the freight elevator in the middle of the night. Every piece had to be measured and cut off-site before transport. And another thing, in order to sustain the lie that we were still located at the 42nd Street address, we had to continue getting mail there. This meant that every night for a year, often after midnight, we had to drive uptown, get the mail, open the mail, and then deposit any checks that had come in that day so we could pay our bills. Helter Skelter, we moved out and in over a weekend with no break in the work of the business. The first few weeks in the new building, we worked on boards of wood on top of sawhorses. The transcription and recording business is a deadline-driven, detail-oriented production line. Everything is always moving quickly, and the pressure can be tough on anyone. Moving and renovating were being done while working on deadline. We were management, contractors, and maintenance all in one. As the costs grew, we remortgaged our house to pull the equity out, borrowed the kid's education savings, and stopped paying his salary. We were broke. That summer, the car would be repossessed in the middle of the night because I didn't have the time to open the mail for three months and wouldn't have had the money to pay the lease anyway. Another night, we brought a jar of change into the grocery store and the machine spit out just enough to feed ourselves and the kids that week. I was working so much and eating so little. I stole an apple as I walked by a bodega on my way home one night. Feeling that hungry and seeing such abundance had left me with a visceral reminder about how infuriating it must be to be hungry in New York because the food is right there. The two of us were jazzed on coffee, cigarettes, and anxiety. And we were fucking exhausted. We didn't even have the energy to fight with each other. We spent the day after the car was repossessed, working our asses off in a state of shock, struck dumb. On the way to the train, walking up 7th Avenue, I looked over at him and said, Do you know anyone else whose car has been repossessed? We laughed hysterically. It felt like I was helping to lift a car that he had flipped onto the both of us. It didn't matter who had been driving. It was him. In the Lincoln Building, along with the transcription and recording business, we also rented out what's known as executive office space. You don't just get an office, you get a receptionist. Now, in the Chelsea Building, the plan was the same. We had to furnish the offices first. Which presented us with a big problem. How to buy office furniture without any money or credit? My eccentric mother-in-law was still holding on to her dead husband's credit cards. His voice was also still on the answering machine, but that's another story. She liked to use them for mail orders. She gave her son one. Or maybe he took it. The details are fuzzy. We took the card to Pottery Barn for a spending spree. The salespeople were so nice, 
and it was such fun to shop and buy things after such a long period of deprivation. Standing in the air-conditioned store, we almost felt normal. We looked at all the furniture. We chose desks, file drawers, shelves. Had we found everything we needed? Yes, thank you. <laughs> they were so helpful, they would deliver it. It wasn't until we got to the cash register that I felt a strong desire to run. The saleswoman took the card and asked for his license. She looked it over. She left the desk. When she came back, she said to my ex, Sir, this card doesn't match your license. You can't use this. Oh, he said, that's my father's. We're in business together. We're in the middle of a move, and he's busy holding down the fort. So he asked me to come and order the furniture. I'm sorry, but we can't accept this. He grinned. Did you take a check? So off we went to get the car, to drive to 42nd Street, to retrieve the checkbook, to write a check we both knew would bounce. But the car was in the parking lot, which was closed on Saturdays, and we had jack shit to pay for a taxi or a subway. So I shouted navigation, and he drove the car through a maze of parked cars out of the lot and over the curb. Back at Pottery Barn, the same saleswoman greeted us with a backhanded, jokey politeness only truly experienced salespeople can pass off. Wow! We're surprised to see you again! And why's that, he asked. Well, we thought your poor father was probably senile, stuck in a nursing home somewhere, and you were trying to pull a scam with his card. With the most perfect composure, batting his blue eyes, in his full-on wasp articulation, my ex looked her dead in the eye and said, I assure you, if there's one thing my father isn't, it's senile. She accepted the check, and by the time it bounced, the furniture had been delivered. The dark circles under my eyes created between 1999 and 2000 took years to fade. Five years later, I filed for divorce. He'd always struggled with mental illness, but the feeling that he had lost his family would trigger a full-blown nervous breakdown. It was beyond anything I could have prepared for. I never imagined he could break. The raft had hit a giant hole and he dropped in. He spent five months in and out of mental hospitals. He would never go back to the business. I would be the one who had to sell the building, the business, and our home. I had to head back out into the rapids. With the kids on board, we dragged him into our raft and back to the safety of shore. Then, in tandem, we paddled back out. We would punch through the holes together.
hands up, I want to say a special thank you to Graceland for fitting in, writing a story, and rehearsing a story, and all that with everything else she's been doing this week. So, uh, and with that, Graceland is going to read story number five the first time. The first time. The first time I learned I had the big C, I was already flat on my back in bed, reading my iPad. My urologist called at 10 p.m. The guy is a friendly, the doc is a friendly guy with a pleasant voice. Still, I wondered, why so late? That and a dozen other thoughts rushed through my mind in the seconds before he spoke. What could be wrong? After all, I was feeling no pain, signaling no clues. Asymptomatic was the word. A few days before, during an annual checkup, I had produced the obligatory urine sample, zipped, left the cup on a shelf, and washed my hands. Look clear to me. Nicely hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> But, he reported, the lab in its analysis had discovered microscopic traces of blood with hints of malignancy. No doom in his voice. Of course, he'd been delivering similar news and worse for a few decades. Make an appointment, he said. He'd go in with the scope and snip out the bad bit. No sleep after that. My wife tried to be reassuring, but was enduring her own sleeplessness. I didn't ask her what she was thinking, although I could guess. My initial instinct was to imagine the next steps, what was to come, assuming the worst, because I belonged to a generation that considered cancer a death sentence. <laughs> My elders didn't even speak the word as in the gravely whispered, he has C. I kept telling myself, it's you, you have C, trying to make myself accept the fact. That was my main takeaway from Martin Heidegger's Being in Time. People acknowledge that an impersonal one will die, but the true existential moment comes in accepting that I will die. Now Heidegger was coming home to roost. I also remember Ronald Reagan saying, a cancer was found. As if it had nothing to do with him. As if an x-ray had revealed he swallowed a quarter. <laughs> but that's what had happened to me. A cancer was found. How integral was it to my essence if, contra Sartre, I had one? Was it a foreign invader in me or of me? Yet I had engendered it. I was the father of my malignancy, sire to cells running amok. I'd like to have disowned my offspring. As I lay there, eyes closed and seeking darkness, my thoughts, with a life of their own, didn't limit themselves to abstract and philosophical matters of mortality. 
I wondered about who would deal with the garbage and the litter boxes. What would happen to the mess in my office, the books stuffed into shelves and closets and crannies all over the house? How would my wife cope with the technology, technology she resists? What would she do alone in all those empty rooms? Would there be much pain? Would the loss of a father be traumatic for my daughters? There's so much to consider when you contemplate dying. My urologist did perform a procedure to excise a growth from my bladder, and I stayed in the hospital overnight, suffering terrible gas pains. But that wasn't the end of it. The second time I learned I still had the big C, my urologist called again at 10 p.m. a few days later, somewhat contrite because he hadn't gotten it all. The malignancy had spread into the muscle of my bladder. He'd have to open me up. Again, a night of little sleep, my hands on my middle, already feeling hollow, imagining an ultimate vanishing. Hours of chemo before elaborate surgery, deep half-circle incisions, various ectomies, organs consigned to medical waste, my internal plumbing reconfigured with organic conduits, reconstruction, reorientation, and rehabilitation. I'm still here. Yet there will be a third time, or a fourth time, if not the big C, something even more dire, a real killer of a message. Amina? Walter. Should be, has anybody has anybody done the math? Yeah. All right. So who's? Gosh, I can't be sure. Yeah. <laughs> Walter's going to come up and he's going to be reading Anthony's story. I love to put the writer right up front so you can see their face while their partner performs their story. I've gotten to do it this time because I'm pointed this way. And Sarah, so Anthony, I would like you to come up. Anthony is extremely intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> I've been intimidated for a frightening person. I know. Yeah. Oh, he is. Sit right here. Oh, yes. And you can adjust the music stand however you like, Walter. And Walter's going to be reading Anthony's story, My First Failed Driving Exam. He's going to face it. Oh, tons. <laughs> my First Failed Driving Exam. <clears throat> Excuse me. I blame my first failed driving exam on my mom. At the age of 18, I took my first driving examination. For the first year after earning a driving permit, I had neglected to actually take any lessons, partially because my parents would rather have ground the underside of their feet with a cheese grater than sit in the car with me behind the wheel. Eventually, they hired a teacher for me, some scapegoat to take down the highway to Mongolia, where I developed, caused a pileup. 
While I forget my driver's instructor's name, I remember a few things about him. He smelled like stale weed and crackers. <laughs> Whenever he got excited, he would either talk about his gambling addictions or the proper way to pleasure a woman by way of ice cream theme metaphors. <laughs> Wicked like ice cream swirl melting off the coming back. <laughs> Whenever I made a mistake, a golf ball-sized tumor would stop pulsating on his neck. I assumed that tumor sat on some sort of vessel, since the racing of his heart would jiggle that thing between the folds a little. My first driving lessons, we took laps around the block. The next, we took a trip on the highway. It was also the last time he ever took me on the highway. <laughs> I knew I was in for a bad time when I saw my instructor's tumor was shaking as if it sat on the sand Andreas fault line. White as a ghost, he nervously played solitaire on a plastic board he had on his lap while I, while I decelerated into the local DMV. <clears throat> a line of cars waiting to take the exam stretched from the driving course to the entrance practically a block and a half away. My foot cramped on the brake, and my instructor rested a foot on his passenger side emergency brake. Every student driver car came with him in case the driver was a madman who liked going 80 through school zones. Eventually, the line shrank, and my turn came to take the examination. I had all my paperwork wrapped up in a plastic folder. My driving instructor vacated his seat with zeal, allowing the driving examiner to enter the car. My driving examiner was a tall man, dark skin, strong cheekbones, stronger jawline. He stood at least seven feet tall, not speaking a word as he entered. Some people have a fun aura to them, while others are charged with an air of don't fuck with me. <laughs> Guess which field this guy gave off. He held out a hand. Documents? Heavy Nigerian accent. I handed him my folder. Thank you, by the way. I don't know why I said that in hindsight. But judging by his lack of verbal response, he neither heard nor cared. He flipped through everything, giving no positive or negative acknowledgement until he reached my birth certificate. This birth certificate? Yes. It is a duplicate. So it was. Yes, it's a certified copy. The website said it was fine. Where is the original birth certificate? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the man closed the folder. Do you have a U.S. passport? No. Have you ever served in the military? No. Then nothing can save you. <laughs> <laughs> I expected him to rip my heart out of my chest. I expected him to snap my head around so I faced my headrest. Instead, he opened the door and walked out, leaving me at the cusp of the driving examination field without an examiner. My mom organized the paperwork for me. She kept my documentation in a safety deposit box. I don't know if that's because my birth certificate was a precious memento of hers that she wanted to keep safe, or because she had so little faith in my ability to keep track of anything <laughs> that she wanted it safe under lock and key. 
When he left the car, I had to laugh. Laughter sponged away the anxiety he left festering inside me. My foot was shaking so hard I probably would have plowed into the DMV if I took the real test. Good luck and bad that I fail, I suppose. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.